Hi, everyone. Welcome to the San Diego News Fix. I'm your host, Christy Totten. Today, we'll discuss extremism in the military with reporter Andrew Dyer, and we'll also talk to editorial and opinion director Matthew T. Hall about media literacy and how you can write for us. First, the news. San Diego County teachers and other essential workers could get COVID vaccinations two to three weeks from now. That's according to County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher. Fletcher said vaccinations for school employees will be prioritized for schools that are open or have agreed to open. Those working in child care, emergency services, and food or agriculture are next in line for vaccines. In a letter to the governor, San Diego County District Attorney Summer Steffen said that child exploitation has almost doubled because of school closures. Steffen urged Governor Gavin Newsom to open schools to stop additional harm. Steffen said she doesn't think policymakers are considering the needs of children as they debate when and how to reopen schools. The California Public Utilities Commission on Thursday directed the state's three major power companies to line up more resources of energy this summer. The move is meant to avoid a repeat of two blackouts last August that left nearly a half million people without electricity. The companies, including San Diego Gas and Electric, have until next week to submit their proposals. The cost will be passed down to ratepayers. Navy leaders visited San Diego this week to begin a series of stand-down talks about extremism in the ranks. Two racist incidents on San Diego ships preceded the talks. In one incident, a black sailor found a noose on his bunk. In another, hate speech graffiti was found aboard an aircraft carrier. The talks were ordered last week by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, the first black Secretary of Defense in United States history. They follow the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol, where a disproportionate number of those charged with crimes were current and former military members. Andrew Dyer, you are our military reporter. You've also served in the Navy. For us civilians, what is a stand-down? Stand-down is a time when work stops and everybody focuses on um, training, basically. Um, a lot of the times they revolve around safety, so it's very common to have a safety stand-down after an accident, for example. Um, if a, you're out on a ship out to sea, a sailor gets hurt, gets electrocuted, something like that, you can expect a safety stand-down in the near future to go over some training objectives and sign some paperwork. And um, that's kind of common throughout the military. You'll have stand downs to, to address some kind of training feature. The stand downs that happened in San Diego this week followed two racist incidents on San Diego ships, but these talks were also ordered nationwide for all branches of the military. Um, and as I understand it, largely in response to the January 6th attack on the Capitol, um, a CNN analysis said that the first 150 arrests found that one in seven of the people charged had military backgrounds. Why was the military presence so outsized in this group? It's it's a good question. I'm not exactly sure. And, and I've struggled with this myself. Like, how big of a deal is it, right? Because um, I, I think if you look at Trump's most uh, hardcore supporters, you know, they're very conservative people. And there are a lot of conservatives um, who join the military and retire from the military. So you, you already kind of have a large population of conservatives in that veteran population. And um, given that, you know, the president was 
very popular with this conservative base, it makes sense that a lot of them would include veterans. Um, I, I think that it's disturbing to people um, because, you know, every member of the military, whether officer or enlisted, you know, they, they swear an oath to defend the Constitution. And what was happening in Congress on January 6th with a, was a constitutionally mandated process. You know, our, our elections follow this uh, very predictable, established uh, procedure. And for people who have sworn to defend the Constitution to move to disrupt a constitutional process, you know, it just it really undermines that oath. And And if you talk to these people, one of the militia groups call themselves the oath keepers the these these three percenters but when you look at their their rhetoric it, it really is uh, you know they are not keeping an oath to the constitution they are are trying to keep to an oath to a a a myth of what that constitution is has there been an uptick in racism in the military like what have we seen here locally and nationally in recent months it's tough because they don't they don't track it very well, and I think that's one of the things that um, going forward they're going to start doing is actually tracking these incidents and the disciplinary actions that are taken. Uh, up to now, there's not really a record, so um, there's just a, a lack of data. Uh, we just don't know how pervasive it might be. Everything that we get is anecdotal. Either something comes out in the news. Um, or, or a sailor will come forward, you know, maybe once they're out of the military, they'll talk about their experiences. Um, you see this with, with women who, who come out of the military with, you know, military sexual trauma and talking about um, sexism and, and, and sexual assault um, that they endured. But while they're in, um, nothing was done and nothing came of it. So um, it's, it's a problem uh, of data, I think, with both extremism and of course the issues with uh, sexual assault and stuff like that. Um, but specifically locally uh, in the very recent past uh, a couple weeks ago on the, uh, the Lake Champlain, which is a uh, guided missile cruiser. There was a, uh, a noose left on a black sailor's rack. And, and then I don't know exactly when this happened. The Navy did not say when, but this was on the Carl Vinson, uh, an aircraft carrier, uh, some uh, racist graffiti was left in a in a bathroom on board. Th those are the two most recent incidents. But you know, going back, we've had service members of of other branches get kicked out because they were, you know, we had members of like Adam Waffen, which is a hardcore neo-Nazi organization, um, were found to be in the military. Um, we had a, a guy stationed at Camp Pendleton who was. Um, sharing a lot of neo-Nazi stuff on social media that was kicked out of the Marines just last year. There was uh, a series of people revealed out of some uh, leaks on Discord of Discord chats of white nationalist groups, including like Patriot Front and Identity Europa, that were outed uh, from those leaks. Um, you know, each of these cases, it was you know reporters and news organizations that kind of rooted them out or identified them. And, and once they were brought to the attention of the services, then they took action to, to kick them out. Um, but it took, it took reporters coming at them. So kind of the, the question and the question that we're asking is, 
you know, how much more can be done um, in the institution to identify and find these people? So after these stand downs, I mean, you explained it as training. Will there be follow up? I mean, will they keep track of, of, of if this actually changes behavior among service people? Yes. So this is what we've been told um, from the, so uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. Um, this is one of the biggest issues that he is attempting to tackle as as defense secretary. Um, he hasn't been in the job long, but he's already um, initiated this this stand down. And the Navy, as far as I know, is the first branch to to actually have stand downs and and to have um, Admiral Acolino, who is the Pacific Fleet commander. Um, that's a that's a four star admiral. Uh, visit the Carl Vinson, and, and you have other flag officers, uh, a three star admiral visiting other ships. Um, it, it says something to the crew because I mean, normally on an aircraft carrier, um, there will be a one star admiral. You might get a visit from a two star, but uh, to have the Pacific Fleet commander come on board the ship, uh, that says something to the, the sailors on board. You don't get a lot of four stars on the ship. So it, it kind of speaks to the seriousness and, and how important this actions, these actions are. And maybe that helps get the message to the, the lower deck, so to speak. But the Navy says, you know, this is just the first in a series of, of conversations and, and issues that they're going to be tackling in the future. Um, now the other branches uh, will also be doing this. This is kind of the opening phases of, what we're told is is a, a series of events to try to um, get these supremacist and extremist ideologies um, out of out of the military. Matthew T. Hall is the editorial and opinion director for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Under his watch, the opinion and ideas section has seen big changes, including a shift in political perspective and adding more local voices. So Matt, give us an overview of the opinion section. What is it that we're putting out there? Yeah, I'm pretty proud of the section. I I think um, people who have followed it for years will have seen that it's changed, uh, both when I took over five years ago and more recently in the last year. There's been some significant changes. Um, You know, we try to reflect the community and the myriad voices in the community. And and since uh, the the pandemic began, and uh, really especially since um, George Floyd's uh, killing uh, and the racial justice reckoning that that swept the nation, we've really kind of tried to feature uh, a range of voices um, that, that, that kind of divides on race and ethnicity, on gender, just in recent days, we've we've uh, gotten into school reopening, trans transgender community, and so you know I, I think the uh, San Diegans should see themselves reflected in our pages at some point. Maybe not every day, but um, you know over time we're going to share uh, a range of voices, and that's something I'm proud of. Yeah, I want to clear this up right off the bat because I think there's a lot of confusion out there about what is opinion, what is news. You know, people think like, oh, the UT is slanted because we put out opinion content. You do a lot of um, public speaking about media literacy. So what do you want to say about that to sort of clear it up for people? Great question. Always happy to talk about that issue. And I honestly, I think a lot of the problems with that are 
self-inflicted wounds that journalists have because we didn't really do a good job or any job explaining the difference, as you say, between news and opinion, and then uh, going down the spectrum of opinion content, the difference between a letter to the editor and a commentary and an editorial and a column. I mean, journalism holds itself to high standards and when we make mistakes, we correct them. That applies to the opinion section and it applies to the news section, but clearly there is a distinction there and I think it's on us to explain it better. Um, you know, So I, I tell teammates, I tell you to get into schools as often as you can and public groups, You know, it makes it a little easier uh, via Zoom to do that. But I think it's important and it's a big part of what we do. Our, our, our job isn't just operating within the lines of putting stuff out and taking comments in and having a conversation. It's about the stuff that we do. It's also impressing upon people why journalism is important, why it matters. Um, and, and I think, you know, slowly we do that, we will begin to rebuild some of the trust that we've lost uh, over, over the years. Trust in journalism is a huge, a huge issue for us right now. Yeah, you know, we've changed the labeling that we've done recently. So we do editorials, we do op-eds, you know, people might not really be familiar with what those are unless they work in journalism. So we're kind of going over to opinion. We've also started putting um, taglines, uh, you know, which explain who an author is at the top, right, online so people can see that. We started labeling our editorials, which is our takes, sort of our opinion on the news by putting our stuff there. Like what, why make those changes? Uh, I, I think for commentaries, I, I'm trying to shy away from using the term op-ed, which means opposite of the editorial page. But commentaries in newspaper uh, kind of tradition holds that you have a byline and then the text. And at the very end, you have a tagline that says, here's who wrote this piece. And here's the context that you really needed before you read the piece to help you um, assess its claims and its veracity. And so we thought, you know, let's put that at the very top online. We should have been doing that a while ago. This will help people. Um, assess the piece, it should be up front. And we did the same thing with editorials where we have a little disclaimer at the top now, just in recent weeks, that says what the editorial board is and how it is different from the newsroom. These are all elements to your broader question about media literacy that are super important and that really just pull the curtain back a little bit um, for our readers, listeners, and viewers to let them know here's the standards we hold uh, ourselves to and 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 why why we need to explain this better so that you can then because all newspapers do, media outlets do, is share information, right? We're giving people information so that they can make decisions and make take action as they choose. And so understanding that information, putting it in context is important. So I want to address a misconception I think is out there. Often when I say I work for the UT, they're like, oh, it's so conservative, like, you know, and, and I think that's based on uh, previous ownership. I don't think it's necessarily the case anymore, but how do you view our political philosophy? Yeah, I think one of the responsibilities that I have as head of the opinion section is knowing what the opinion section has been in the past and and what types of voices it shared in the past. It historically was a conservative editorial board because the ownership of the paper was conservative, both under the Copley family and then more recently uh, when Doug Manchester owned the paper, um, the board's voice was a conservative voice. Um, one of the things I've tried to do, I don't view the world as you know, in terms of right and left, conservative or liberal, I, I tend to be more moderate, more centrist. Although the, the you know the, the common ground that 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 we share in between the the two polars, uh, two polar uh, opposite parties uh, is is shrinking. Um, but I think there's room for discussion in in the middle, and I think that's where we try to have uh, the board's um, outlook. And, and I think importantly, then 
you know, people are always going to be angry at stuff that we write. But I think what's important with our work is that people on, on either side, on all sides of an issue can be angry with us depending on the day and the subject, which I think uh, I'm actually proud of that too. You know, I wear it as a badge of honor. I, I think we try not, I, I like that we're not predictable. You know, I like that we don't fit a kind of a, a box or a narrow description. I don't think life is like that. I think life is gray and not just um, uh, black and white. And, and I think our pages reflect that. We try to be thoughtful and thought provoking. And so we are criticized by uh, uh, people on the left. We are criticized by people on the right. And that's just part of, uh, of the equation. I think increasingly people are um, uh, uh, liking what they see in the Union Tribune and liking that they are surprised uh, by some of the positions that we're staking out. I also think the opinion section in a lot of ways is kind of the the section of the people because yes, again, we're putting out editorials, which is our opinion, our take on the news, but we're also, you know, putting out the opinions of others at a much higher rate. So explain to me some of the ways that the community is involved in the section. Yeah, great question. And that's one of the big changes that I referenced earlier that have taken place uh, this past year is it used to be that we ran editorials one or two every day, all seven days a week, there was an editorial or two in the paper. And after um, the pandemic began, I thought that was the time to hear from expert voices, from people who were in education or in health or um, in any, you know, if you pick the subject, uh, which is not to say that we aren't experts, you know, the thing with journalism is that we know a little a bit, a little about a lot, um, but experts can go deep on these issues in ways that our board is not necessarily uh, was able to do uh, in a 24 hour turnaround. And so we started running multiple commentaries and, and there were no editorials in many days of our section. Now there's three days of the week where it's just uh, expert and lived commentary, which I think is important to, to show that. To your point, I think amplifying other people's voices is a big part of what we do. In many ways, it is the job because it's not our decisions being our way or the highway. It's our decisions being part of a larger conversation. And so some specific ways that we've done some outreach in the community, we have a community advisory board that um, uh, Laura Castaneda, our community opinion editor, and I meet with monthly with others from the UT. Uh, It's about 15 or 20 people from different walks of life all around the community, different uh, uh, difference, different in, in, in race and ethnicity, gender, um, geography, occupation, it's really a great group. And they help formulate uh, a lot of our thinking and uh, our coverage. And we also have a community voices project, which one of the great frustrations I have about newspapers is that we're locked in by time and space. And so, you know, you have 750 words every three months where we will maybe let you publish an op-ed, but it's kind of like we set the terms. That always made me a little uncomfortable. And so we created a, a wide ranging group of 60, 70 people who write about anything they want uh, at any time they want, at any length they want. And I think that's an important part of a community too, is not dictating the terms of the discussion, but letting others um, uh, start and foster conversation. You can contact Matthew T. Hall at matthew.hall at sduniontribune.com. Thanks for tuning in. This is your San Diego News Fix. I'm your host, Christy Totten, and we'll be back tomorrow.